Well, good morning. Thank you. Wow, that's, that is the loudest I've ever heard on the first morning of camp ever. I've been 26 years of doing this, and people are like, shut up. Shut your mouth. That's usually what I hear. Okay, uh, you have your Bibles. Uh, Luke 15. If you don't have a Bible, Luke 15. Go stand past it. All right. How about we prepare ourselves? Let's pray. I'll pray. to how you want to use us this day and this weekend. And God, as we jump into a passage of Scripture that I'm sure a lot of us have heard before, we've heard the idea behind it, God, make it new. Take us deeper into it. Understanding of it. Understanding of you. Knowing that all Scripture points to Jesus. myself a feeble attempt at trying to make much of Jesus, and so God, take a feeble attempt and change and transform your glory for your purposes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 15, verse 1 and 2, and these are two of my favorite verses, and I hope you'll see why, and it says this, now the tax collectors and sinners. It's like, wait, so were the tax collectors not sinners? No, they were in that, in that day, in that culture, they were like the worst of the worst. Like there's the tax collectors. They're the ones that are they're gonna burn hotter in hell than anybody. That's kind of how they felt. And then there's the sinners. So there's the tax collectors and there's the sinners. Um, and this is why they hated the tax collectors so much. So imagine um, you have a person, probably, um, and especially from the Jewish areas, um, you have a person who's a Jewish person and they're hired on by Rome. And Rome didn't care what the tax collectors did with regards to collecting taxes. So long as Rome got the amount that they're supposed to have, the tax collectors could then charge extra in amount. Um, and then just make money off of it. And so tax collectors were hated because all of them were just, they were crooks. They just took and took and took. And the people were under this, um, this oppression. And so when they, when they say out, when they point out that now tax collectors and sinners were all, now watch this, they were all drawing near to him, him as Jesus. And then the Pharisees, these are the religious leaders, the, the Pharisees and the scribes, Grumbled, saying, "This man receives sinners and eats with them." How dare he? How dare he receive sinners and eat with them? Is anybody else here thankful that Jesus receives sinners? Yeah. And I want to make sure that we get this throughout the weekend, and then it's going to come up, especially uh, maybe tomorrow night or maybe before. But friends, I, I, we are all sinners. Every single one of us, every person on the planet, I and mean, we just suck. 
And it's okay. I mean, admit it. If you can just say it. And I suck. It's like, woohoo, it's freed. No more facade. You don't have to fake it anymore. When we get that and understanding our sinfulness and yet God's desire for us, it just makes the gospel even more beautiful. I don't live with this constant state of shame knowing that I'm a sinner, knowing that I still struggle with sin. I still, it's still a battle every day. Yeah, I mean, this morning I, this thought popped in my head. I'm like, oh, God, that's not pleasing. God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. But then it reminds me, man, I'm saved by grace. So it's not like Jesus came, died, came back from the dead, and now everyone on the planet is fine. No, there's this necessity to receive him, to come into Christ, to receive Christ so that I can be redeemed and brought back into relationship with the Father. So there is that, and so we'll kind of go through that. But to know that behind the heart of Jesus is this desire for sinners. When you look in the scriptures, it says that Jesus came. I mean, it says it more than once, but he himself is like, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That means he has a heart for the lost. And to eat a meal with someone in that day, where you were saying, I accept you as my friend. Today, I mean, I can eat with anybody if they'll pay. Right? Even if you don't like them, it's like, hey, my treat. You're like, serious? Yeah, wherever, wherever you want to go. Oh, where, wait, your treat, wherever I want to go? Oh, my gosh, yeah. So what steakhouse have I not been to in a long time? Like, you're not picking Wendy's that day, right? You're not picking Denny's, because the only good at Denny's is an egg. Well, I'm not sure if anybody works at Denny's. I'm sorry. I don't. Okay, I like their breakfast, and after that, I don't understand the rest of their food. But, guys, it's like when someone invites you, it's like, I can eat with anybody. Even if I don't like you, I can endure an hour so that I can have a free meal. Guys, they didn't do that then. If you ate with somebody, you were, you, were, you were saying to them, we're good, we're friends, I accept you. This is the reputation that Jesus had, and this is the reputation that ticked off all the religious leaders. How dare you accept and receive sinners? And I'm so thankful that we have a God who does, who receives us. And so Jesus, knowing what they were thinking, he tells these parables. Okay, so we're going to go through them. First one, he says, what man, verse three, so he told them this, this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Real quick, think about it. You have a hundred, you have a hundred sheep. You lose one. Honestly, how many of you would leave the 99 in the open country to go after the one? I'm like, well, will <laughs> that's lunch for a coyote i mean god's providing that's how he does it i mean to leave 99 in the open country and go after the one that just seems ludicrous to me youth pastors how much pressure do you feel to bring every kid back from camp you feel it like you got to bring them all back you imagine have a hundred you take a hundred kids uh, take a, i just use a hundred because it's easy math you take a hundred and you come back with 99 and you're sitting there going, that's an A. <laughs> right? It's like, that's a 99%. I can't be perfect every time. So you come back, and the parent of that one kid's like, where's our kids? Like, you can't expect me to be perfect all the time. <laughs> I remember, <laughs> I, don't, again, I don't know who hears what or where I say what, but I remember years and years ago when I was doing youth ministry, I was, we took the kids uh, to this beach camping weekend. And I already told you, I don't like camping. It's not my favorite thing, but the kids liked it, so you suffer. Unless you love camping, then do it. But we go to the beach, and the 
the kids are like, we want to swim, and I'm just exhausted because I didn't sleep at all that night. Because, I don't know, youth, youth leaders and youth pastors, they don't sleep at night when it's a youth event. It's like we're kind of like the prison guards making sure that the genders stay away from each other. You know why. So it's like we're always doing that. And then you don't sleep great because you think someone's trying to do something to you. Because um, I don't know why youth leaders were always the target. Understand, they love you. Okay, so I'm at the beach with them. Like, if you want to go swim, I'm like, go swim. And so they go, but I fall asleep for like an hour. And not all the kids, but a chunk of them. I mean, only maybe 20, 10 or 12. So and like an hour, after an hour, I woke up. And I thought, that was the best sleep I've had forever. And then I thought, I better, I better go find my kids. So we have a bunch that are hanging out still. And so I'm like, i got to go find them. So I ask the leaders, have you seen them? No, they're still swimming somewhere. No one's watching them. And I thought, really hope I didn't lose 10. And so I start walking the beach. And as I walk the beach, they don't see them yet. But now I see all these lifeguards from all over the place. You see the ones from the beach, they're running into the water. You see that no, one of those massive lifeguard yellow boats just flying. And then, no joke, banks left, a hard left. And as it banks left, three lifeguards off the back jump and like swan dives. They're going, and I'm, I'm not even worried about the kids anymore. I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, I'm not even thinking about it. I just feel like I'm watching Baywatch just happening. And there they are. They're just swimming. And all of a sudden, I see them swimming toward these little 10 to 12 heads. And I went, no. They're all my students. They're not calling for help. They're just having a blast. And I just, I just started thinking, going, oh, this is going to get back to parents. I almost killed and they're going to say, yeah, we all, we all got saved by lifeguards. Where was Brian? He was sleeping. It's like, I just had this fear. And so I'm watching this happen, and they come back. And the thing is, they had no clue. They were, they were, caught, they were caught in a riptide. And so, and then one of these lifeguards had this Australian accent. He's all jacked, so all the girls are like, <laughs> Okay, so they're all, they're all just, I'm going to so marry him. I'm like, you're not. You're 14. <laughs> just pass it up. Okay, but they all come back in. I just thought, oh, man, i got to find a way to turn this story so it doesn't get back on my slacker. Now, guys, if, if those ten didn't come back, like if God decided to swallow them with the ocean, and I come back without them, there'd be some parents that would be pissed. They'd be ticked, right? <laughs> they'd be so pissed off with me. But I brought them all back. They all made it. They all, and they thought it was fantastic. Like, we got saved. I'm like, no, you didn't. Yeah, we did. Shut up. That's not the story. <laughs> but they all made it back. And it's not because I went after them. It's not like when I saw the lifeguards swimming, I'm like, I got to jump in. I'm like, if, if they can't make it, this homeboy's not going to make it back out. Guys, Jesus is sitting there going, you have 99, one gets lost. Or you have 100, one gets lost. You go after the one. And we're sitting there going, do we? And Jesus goes, you absolutely do. You go for the one. And so then watch what happens. He gives kind of this, the heart behind it. Verse 5. When he has found it, or when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. That means he carries it home. And in this day, there'd be a lot of, a lot of times a shepherd, if a sheep takes off, when they find it, they would pick it up, put it over their shoulder, but break a leg. And you sit there and go, oh, that's brutal. But what it did is it kept them close. I mean, they're protecting it. 
and they would carry it back and then nurse it back to health. And then all of a sudden, it's kind of like they're getting right back into what they were doing before. But the shepherd cares for the sheep. Like, so you find it, but you go rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have lost, I'm sorry, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And that's a big statement, right? Do you notice how often he uses the word rejoice there? I mean, it's kind of like he lays on his shoulder rejoicing. You get to verse 6, rejoice with me. He calls. Can you imagine getting that phone call? Dude, you got to come over. You all right? Yeah. Okay, I lost a sheep. I found it. We got to have a party. Doesn't that just seem like a, an excuse to have a party? It's like, get some guacamole, and let's have a party. Let's just go for it. Now watch the next story. It's like, or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? When she's found it, the one, she still has nine, but she finds the one. She calls together her friends and neighbors saying, what's the word? Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You see what he's trying to get us to understand so far? He says there's joy before the angels of God. So who are all the angels of God facing? They are facing God. So if there's more joy before the angels of God, that means the one who is exuding the most joy is who? God. Right? Guys, we don't we just don't picture God like that. And we kind of picture him just like an older version of the Pope. To sit on his throne, way in the back. And it's like he's watching his kids just going crazy. And he's like, it's okay. They'll get tired out. And then they'll get serious again. Guys, when we see this, like think about it. When one who was lost comes home, all of heaven goes bonkers. There's this celebration and Gosh, I want to live my life in such a way. And I think that we as the church, we can get back to this. That we'd get back on mission. That we would exhaust heaven because we're causing so many rejoicings, celebrations, parties. That God is using us so well because we're so obedient to the mission. Not of building our church. It doesn't matter who comes to our place to worship. But to build the kingdom that people would come to Jesus. I want angels to be exhausted. I want them to be sitting there going, I can't take anymore. I can't take anymore. And Jesus is going, we got more. Sometimes I wonder if they're just looking for space and they think that they're getting bored. Somehow we lost it. Then you get to verse 11, and this is the story that most of us know. I mean, if you don't, I'm so sorry. That's kind of presumptuous. But I feel like this is one that's kind of a, one of the biggies for the church. Verse 11, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. It's kind of rude. It's kind of like he looks, he walks up to dad and goes, Dad, you're not dead yet. I sure wish you were. Since you're not, can I have my inheritance that I'm going to get so I can have it now? I don't want to wait till you're dead. Guys, if one of my boys, if, my, if Dylan walks up to me and goes, Dad, you're not dead yet. Can I get my inheritance now? I'd be like, absolutely. Throw him a nickel. And say, have a blast. I just look at this and go, gosh, how rude. And here's why I love Jesus, or partly why I love Jesus. He's such a good storyteller. 
I guarantee that every, especially the Pharisees, are sitting there going, what? And he's drawn all of them in. He's drawn all of them in. But but look at the response of the father. He divided his property between them, between the two sons. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. When he spent everything... When he'd spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into, the, into, into his fields to feed pigs. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Guys, oh, he just painted a picture that's horrid. This is absolutely unbelievable to the audience. The Pharisees are sitting there going, serves him right. Why bring up the pigs? You tell me. Why was like he he had to go work with pigs? Why would that just make the audience go? <gasps> They're unclean, right? And so Jesus picks an animal, the animal. This is the unclean animal. It's like what? Yeah, and and then he makes it even worse. Not only was he not only was he having to work with the pigs. What did he want? He wanted their food. He wanted like have you ever watched a pig eat? I don't sit there and go that looks good. I mean, I look at the pig going that looks good. Because who doesn't love bacon, right? But I've never watched the meat going, I want some of that. And he's, I mean, Jesus just painted this picture. This is how bad it got. This guy takes off with his whole inheritance and makes Vegas look like JV. He's just going absolutely bonkers on everything. He's just living it up. And then this famine hits, and he's, he's in such a bad place. He's working with the unclean of the unclean, and he wishes he could eat what they're eating. He's got nothing. And then you get to verse 17. But, now how many guys have an NIV? Who has an NIV Bible? What's, it, what's, that, what's the first few words in verse 17? Say real loud. There it is. But when he came to his senses, when he came, I, mean, I, I use the ESV and it says this, but when he came to himself, I actually like MME's rendering of that a little bit better. When he came to his senses, he had this like aha moment. So when he came to himself, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. So he comes up with this plan. I'll arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And this is the apology of all apologies. Can you imagine him rehearsing, going, okay, what will I say? Because I'm starving. Father, I'm no no longer worthy to be called your son. Oh, I can't wait to see. I'll get some tears going. It'll be good. Now watch this part. Verse 20. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was a still while, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Guys, in order to see something a long way off, what do you have to looking. So in this story, Jesus is painting this picture of a father who is looking, just longing to see his son come back. Just looking in the direction where he left, and he's just waiting for him to come back. And for some of you, then you could look at this passage and go, wait, this father isn't loving. I mean, he let him go, and he kind of knew what he was going to do with it. Why not just say no? Guys, you know what? This this coincides with Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, it talks about God's wrath. 
And then in that same chapter, three different times, it says this, and I'm convinced that this is part of what God's wrath looks like, that it's not always thunderbolts from heaven and hailstones the size of trucks landing on people. I think part of God's wrath is this. He lets you go. Like he's, he's like, I want to go. He's like, okay. And then what happens? You realize when you take yourself out from underneath the protection of God, you realize that the world and sin is just absolutely destructive. We handed them over. We handed them over. We handed them over. Three times in Romans. We handed them over. Handed them over. Here in this passage, it says the Father let him go. But why would God do that if he loves us? It's like, well, he's just punishing. No, no, no. Because when you continue into Romans chapter 2, it talks about that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. That God's handing us over is connected to his kindness that it would cause us to repent and to come back. That's this passage. Guys, connected to God's wrath is his love. Desire for repentance, people to come back to him, for us to never talk about it, is to diminish who it is that God is. So this father letting him go is, is, is an act of love. And then when the son comes back, can you imagine this dad every night just going, oh, how's he doing? Man, as a dad of two boys, I could just be sitting there if Dylan took off. My heart would be breaking every night. Is he okay? What's, he, what's going on? It's not like he can write back. He can't cell phone me. There's no cell phones in the day. I'm just hoping things are okay. But he saw him from a long way away. And he says he felt compassion, and then he ran. Guys, in that day, no Jewish man would run. You don't run. So he runs to him. He embraces him and he kisses him. And then the, the son actually tries his apology. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, it never says that he even heard the apology. It never said he's like, okay, tell me what you learned. Tell me what you did. Tell me what you did. It's like he totally ignored the whole thing. He just looks at his servants and says what? Bring quickly the best robe. Who would have the best robe? Probably. Who would have the best robe? The dad, right? So it's like dad saying, go get my robe. Guys, this is going to get a little bit of uh, doctrine stuff. Can you imagine that robe? They get the robe, and they place it on the son, but it's really the dad's robe, right? When you take this concept, it's called imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness is this. It's kind of like, imagine I have this coat of sin, and Jesus has this coat of righteousness, and we exchanged coats. Like he, he imputed righteousness. That it's not me becoming more righteous because I do great things. It's him making me righteous before him. And he took my sin. So when you see this dad saying, go get my robe, go get the best robe, and put it on him and put a ring on his hand. It's probably a signet for the family on the ring. Shoes on his feet. Man, aren't you thankful that God knows how to practically love us? Like he sees the need. It's like, I think there's this. Hey, he needs, he needs to have my covering. I'm going to go doctor on He needs to have my covering. He needs to know he's mine. Let's put a ring on his hand. But man, practically, homeboy needs some shoes. Can you go get some shoes for him? Put it on his feet. Guys, I wasn't going to do this, but... Um, you want to keep your finger there in Luke. In Mark chapter 5, one of my favorite passages, 
Jesus is walking along. A man named Jairus, who's the synagogue ruler, comes running up to him. He says, my little daughter is dying. Jesus is just consumed by people. Everyone's trying to touch him because they, they thought this, if they could touch him, they'll be healed. He, he was healing tons and tons of people, and all these people are in need, and so he just is walking, and then Jairus is a synagogue ruler, and the religious leaders had already said this. Anyone who gives any kind of credence to Jesus as being more than just a person, okay, you're thrown out of the synagogue. That's the center part of life. For the synagogue ruler to bow down before Jesus and beg him, come heal my little daughter. I guarantee he lost his job. He doesn't seem to care. Why? Because it's his daughter. But what is he calling? He says, my little daughter. When you get later into the passage, she's 12. But ladies, isn't it true? You're always daddy's little girl. Doesn't matter how old you are. You're like, I don't want to ever know. Don't. I'm not daddy's little girl. You may get to that point somewhere and you're growing up and then all of a sudden you'll realize, I kind of like that. As long as you and dad are tight. And if you're not, I'm so sorry. But Jairus was tight. My little daughter, she's dying. So Jesus, is, he doesn't say, what did you say about me yesterday? He says, let's go. So he starts to walk, and the Bible says people were thronging. I've never used that word ever. But it just means they're just kind of, everyone's just kind of pushing, and so the disciples are trying to make a way, make their way through the crowd, and, and Jesus keeps walking, and all of a sudden, this woman with a flow of blood, which would make her unclean, she had it for 12 years. For 12 years, she was considered unclean. No one could touch her. If you touched her, you were unclean. And then you'd have to go to the high priest so that he could say that you're clean. For 12 years... Isn't it amazing? We'll pray for something for 12 minutes, maybe, if we're really dedicated. And if he doesn't change it, then God doesn't care. Is it possible that God does his best work slowly? Like not David. He's anointed king. Anybody know how about how long until he became king? About 15 years, give or take. Did he become an incredible king? Yeah, but remember that one time? Absolutely. Wasn't he one of the most amazing kings that ever led Israel? Yeah, you know when he became a king? You know how, where he learned to be that king? In the 15s. Where he learned to rely upon God was within those 15 years. Guys, i got to be honest. God will go slowly to make you look more and more like Jesus rather than just making sure you get your things together. And the best thing that he could do is go slowly. He loves you enough to say, you got to trust me in the time. When Joseph goes to... When he's, when he's sold into slavery by his brothers when he's 17, that's when you know you got some problems in your family. They sell him into slavery. And then he goes and he's sold into Potiphar's house. And he, everything Joseph did, it blessed Potiphar. He, Potiphar's become more rich because Joseph's in charge. Then all of a sudden, Potiphar's wife doesn't give her name. So Potiphar, we'll just call her Potiphar. So Potiphar makes it, keeps making moves on him, like, come sleep with me. It's kind of like, that's pretty direct. You're not, you're not wondering what she's thinking. And every day he's like, no, 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 no. And then back to back, one day he says, you know what? Everything in the house is mine. It's been entrusted to me except for you. But then he says this, how could I sin against my God? Doesn't even say it about Proverbs. I can't, can't sin against my God. So then she makes this false accusation that he tried to rape her. Potiphar, she tells, she tells Potiphar, he gets him thrown into prison. But then it's like the end of the story. It's like, oh, but it's only a couple chapters. Then he becomes number two in Egypt. Remember? He goes from prisoner to number two to Pharaoh, or next to Pharaoh. Anybody know how long it took? 13 years. 
So before we say that God's not faithful, maybe God has a bigger purpose than what we think he does. So here's, she has it in mind, 12 years that we're dealing with this. She did everything the doctors told her to do, but because she did those things, those things made her worse. She sees Jesus, and she thinks, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. There's faith. Guys, here's the faith. It's not because she had the idea. It's because she acted on it. So everybody in the room, you are practicing faith in a very practical way. Everyone is sitting on your chair because you actually believe that it would hold you, right? No one's like, oh, I'm not sure. So you're just squatting the whole time. Your legs are all jet. Oh, they're all shaking. But by the time you're done, your calves are bigger than your face. It's like, ah. Guys, have you ever, have you ever broken a chair? That's humbling, right? There's no way around that. It's like, I feel fatter than ever. I mean, it's just kind of weird. Has anyone ever offered you the tiny chair? And you're like, are you kidding me? Faith is not, I have this belief that. Faith is the action because you have the belief that. So I got a little simple equation for faith. Faith equals, so belief plus action equals faith. You have one of, if you only have one or the other, you don't have faith. Faith always requires an action. So here's the thing. It says she made her way through the crowd and she touched the hem of his garment. Here's the thing. How can she get to Jesus if they're all rushing in to touch him? What does she have to do in order to touch Jesus? She has to touch who? Everyone else. Can you imagine as they realize who it is and what's going on, can you imagine how frustrated or ticked off some of them would be? You've just made me unclean. Or maybe she's just like, coming through. Just starts making way. The sea parts. She touches the hem of garment. She's healed immediately. And then Jesus stops and goes, who touched my clothes? Maybe the dumbest question in all of scripture. Because even the disciples go, um, Jesus, you see everybody here? We're trying to touch you. And you have the nerve to say, who touched my clothes? So it's like Peter sitting there going, the first three rows. The first three rows of people, they all touched your clothes. And he didn't stop. He's just like, who touched my clothes? And waited and waited and waited and waited. And all of a sudden, she realized what happened to her. She knew that she'd been healed. And she goes before everyone onto her knees, terrified and trembling. And in this passage, in verse 34, Mark chapter 5, if you have it open, who has it open? What does he call her? Daughter. Why? Just because it's a moment. It just makes it like a movie moment. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and heal. She healed her immediately. Guys, why call her out? Why not just go peace out? I mean, shh, what happened? You're good. And then just keep going. Guys, do you think she was going to die that day? So practically speaking, practically, God loves her practically. Jesus loved her in a very practical way. How? One, how else do you tell the whole crowd that she's free from her disease other than making, the whole, making sure the whole crowd gets to hear about it in one moment? It's kind of like, hey, she's good. Let her back in. But number two, maybe Jesus knew that she needed to what? She didn't really need to be healed that day, but she definitely needed to feel him. And so he calls her daughter. Turn with me the same word that Jairus uses for his little daughter. It's the same word that Jesus uses here for her. Very practical. Then gets to Jairus' house. And before he even gets there, the word comes to, to 
to Jairus and says, hey, your daughter's dead. I'm like, you know, maybe soften that a little bit. So it's like, your daughter's dead. Don't bother him anymore. Come on, let's go. You're kind of a jerk. So then Jesus looks at him and says, hey, you have a choice here. Like, you asked me to come. You can either go home, and this is a paraphrase. This is a longer paraphrase. You can go bury her, or I can still come do what I was going to do. Jesus shows up. Everybody's crying. And Jesus says, why are you all crying? This is kind of rude. He says, well, she's dead. He goes, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. The thing is, he hasn't seen her yet. She's not dead. She's just sleeping. And they all mocked him. They all laughed at him. And it's not like Jesus like, stop laughing. Stop it. Stop it. I have a really insecure soul. Stop making me feel like it says he just put them all outside. He's like, get out. Mom and dad, come on in. Peter, James, and John, come on in. And the rest of y'all, you'll need to bolt. Close the door. He walks up to this dead girl, takes her by the hand, which is a no-no because he's, he's touching something that's dead. He doesn't care. Grabs her hand and says, Talitha Kum, which means little girl, get up. Amen. Can you imagine the disciples Can you imagine Jairus? They don't know what to do. Just looking at Jesus, and Jesus just, I just picture him just pulling her up and gave her this massive hug. And, and then he said, get her something to eat, which I'm thinking is right. If someone was dead and they come back from the dead, you should get him a sandwich. I think it just is, <laughs> I, think, I think that's the right thing to do. So this is a universal concept. If someone goes dead, comes back from the dead, you should have a sandwich ready. Just give it to him, a sausage sandwich. There you go. That's not healthy. Guys, they were dead. It doesn't matter. They beat that. They come back. Just give them something they like. But it, it, here's the thing. It's like, just loves her practice. Get her something to eat. And then walks out. Why tell the whole crowd? She's not dead. She's just sleeping. Why not say at that moment, she, uh, she was dead. I brought her back from the dead. Boom. This is the time to trash talk. But what if Jesus knows how to protect the reputation of a little girl. Because who wants to play with a dead girl? Who wants to marry the dead girl? But Jesus, I'm going to leave you thinking she was sleeping, because doesn't the scripture at certain points in the Bible actually talk like death is sleep? Kind of puts them together. And so he just looks and says, yeah, sure, she's sleeping. Yeah, she's sleeping. Can you imagine as this little girl comes out and just standing next to Jesus with her sandwich Everyone's just sitting there going, what? Can you imagine the thoughts going through their mind? Like one leans over going, remember the last month you buried Grandpa? He was dead, right? And they're just like, doesn't matter now. He is now. Let's just leave it alone. Guys, we may not understand why God does what he does when he does it the way that he does it. You have to remember that behind all of it is his love. You say, Brian, this is the hardest thing I've ever been through. And I'm still going to tell you, God is great. God is good. Guys, I, I got to just say something. Doesn't cancer suck? You ever gotten that phone call? Maybe you've had to go through it personally, but you ever got that phone call of a family member or friend, and they tell you, I have cancer? Doesn't that suck? It sucks. 
stuff. I just watch it and just have to stop. I still remember when my wife called me. We had a two-year-old and a one-month-old at the time. And the doctor didn't even tell me to come. She knew. Before Dylan was born, before, before she was pregnant, my wife had this lump on her throat. So we had it checked and had a biopsy. They said, no, it's fine. But there was two tumors. They said, well, can you check the smaller one? He's like, it's never there. It's never there. You're fine. Just have a baby. You're good. And we had Dylan. So then my wife is awesome. She's smart. She's definitely smarter than I am. And I'm not trying to put myself down. She's just very smart. She tells the doctor, I want you to do a biopsy on the second one. He's like, it's fine. She's like, I love her. She's like, no, you're going to do it. And I'm like, get him, yeah. My wife, she is so sweet and so quiet. But if you mess with her kids, or if she knows something's going on with herself or me, man, claws come out. And I'm like, yeah, mama bear, get it going. She's like, no, you're going to do it, which didn't make sense. We have insurance. We'll just do it. She does have a bunch of cancer. She doesn't tell me to come in. So there's my wife with my two-year-old and my one-month-old having to hear the news by herself. We were going to take that out, right? Yeah. She had no clue. She's like, yeah. Oh, that's good. She's got cancer. Goes back down again. So she calls this lady sitting down. I wasn't in the office working. She's sitting down. I was like, I wasn't. I was drinking. I was talking. I was reaching for something, working on something else. And she goes, are you sitting down? I was like, nope. I like that one. So she told me. Everything just loaded on me. And it's like, I'm on my way. I'm going. I don't know what I thought I was going to do. I'm going to go. I'm a pastor. God will give me the spirit to take that sucker out. Get home, take a butter knife out, open her throat, just take that sucker out. Like, I'm ready to go. Like, I'm man, I'm pastor, I'll fix this sucker. So I'm packing my stuff up and I'm tearing up and put my glasses on. Why? So nobody knows. Isn't it weird that when you, when you cover your eyes, nobody really, know, really knows what you're thinking. When, you, when they see your eyes, it's like the window to your soul. Is that how that little phrase is? They know exactly what's going on. It's like, what's up? And my assistant, she's like, this little grandma. I don't know, I don't know if grandmas can smell stuff. Because I had the glasses on. And as I start going, it's like, hey, I'll see you later. She goes, wait, wait, what's wrong? What's wrong? She's like, I just got to get home. What's wrong? And she wouldn't, I don't, you can't get out of grandma's, like her tractor beam. Just, just sucks you in. And she's the only person that's like, Brian. I'm like, uh-oh. And she asks, what's wrong? She's like, wait, I'll give you five minutes. You're out. But I'm bringing everybody together. I rushed down the steps. I jumped in my car. Made it from our first parking lot to the second one and lost it. And friends, I wish I could tell you that I was full of faith. I'm like, God, it's so good. It's so good. Praise you. Consider pure joy. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, God and I had it out. These were not the prayers that you would ever want to hear from the pulpit. Because I didn't use Jesus' language. There were some three and four letter words that came out of my mouth, and I feel no guilt for it. I just kept screaming. Here's my whole life's about you, and this, this is what, like, you couldn't protect her from this? So I'm calling my, I'm calling my family, I call my mentor on the way home. This is when it was legal, you could actually talk on the phone. And I'm, dri I'm driving home, the speed limit-ish. 
I got to the speed limit and I went past it. Right. And I got home and I remember, I guys remember like yesterday, well, I remember walking, pulled in the garage, tiny little house, just smaller than this. And I opened the door that went from the garage into the kitchen. And there was my two-year-old right here at the table, tiny little table. I mean, he's like this big. He's sitting there just having, eating hot dogs. Because who doesn't love a good hot dog? Well, maybe. Okay, so there he is. And then my one-month-old is over there on the floor in the kitchen. Well, okay, in the carrier on the floor in the kitchen. Not like, not just thrown on the floor. <laughs> We're a bunch of rednecks. It wasn't like that. <laughs> and then my wife is at the kitchen sink just cleaning up something. I wish I could tell you that I was just full of faith. Oh, you can, you can, you can. This is what God's talking about. I'm going to be a single dad one day. And she just came in. I didn't say that out loud. Can you imagine if I said that out loud? Babe, let me encourage you. I'm going to be a single dad. And I said, take a nap. And she turned around and just hugged him. And he was grieving. He kind of had to keep together because he had a two-year-old eating hot dogs. Radiation is the hardest part for me. Kids do chemo, and I'm so thankful for that. Which is why I would do that. Radiation was just simply be a week away in the hospital by yourself in a room. You took one radioactive iodine pill, and you'd have to swallow it, so then you couldn't be around us again. I remember the day, the morning when we left to go do that. The boys were there. Her parents came down to watch them while I took her there, just to help out in the process. I remember she's just being strong for the boys, and and we turned the corner, and she just started beating up the hell out of me. It was hard. And she just said, it hurts so bad. Joan was like four months at the time, and she, had, she couldn't nurse anymore after that. She was broken. And I just looked and just said, what, God, why? Like, why are you letting this happen? Again, I didn't say it out loud. I got my new sunglasses on, and tears are streaming down and trying to wipe them off. I remember when we sat in the hospital room and she took that pill. It was kind of like, and they brought it in this massive box for one pill because it's glowing, not literally, but it's radioactive. And as it's closed, they kind of explain what's happening. And then we said, she said, do you want to give her a final hug? I'm like, what? And then they take it out and place it in her hand and she pops it in her mouth and then swallows it. And we all left the room. Talking to her, I talked to her on the phone, and I went down to visit her one time. I couldn't handle it because I'd have to. I'd stay outside the room. So just kind of picture the length, even a little bit wider. This is the length of the room. I would come. I'm, I'd go to the door, and I'd have to find this little this little gauge that I have to take in with me. So it, it said zero. I'd write zero, and then I would go in and shut the door, and I'd have to stand right there, and she would sit way over there, and I could be in there for five minutes. And then when I left, I'd have to walk out, look at the meter to make sure it still said zero. And I told her, I said, I can't do that anymore. I said, I can't. I I'll talk to you for hours on the phone, but I can't do that. And they told her, if you, if you, if you pee a lot and you sweat, it's going to be quicker. Man, she, was, she said, she's doing sit-ups. She's doing jumping jacks. She's like having her own little insanity party. It's like P90X on steroids in the hospital room by herself. She's just losing all this, all this water out of her. But we still couldn't go home for another week. Joan and our church had a timeshare, just perfect timing. I was like, why don't you go use that? 
I still broke it. And I'll be home. And I'm 22. I think we're 13 years out. And I know because it's always connected to the age of my youngest. And I'm thankful that God provided and He did not fail. I'm so thankful for that. And I look for some of you who have a different story. And I can't answer why. I don't know. I can say this. This was not an oops in Jesus' life. Because in that time, in those first five years, give or take, there's a few years of surgeries and radioactive iodine. What what I learned about God in that time, I never learned before. In that moment, in that season, the sovereignty of God. The idea that God is sovereign. You know what sovereign means? commander of the universe. He is in charge of every single thing that goes on. His sovereignty brought me here. And I never knew it until the next day. I never knew that Jesus and I could be eternal enemies. Because I'm convinced if you want to be used greatly by God, then be prepared to be broken greatly by God. And that it is the sweetest thing that he could do. I don't want to do it again. Once a year she'll get her blood checked. Once she gets her blood drawn, I have to wait two weeks. I hate that. But once she goes for two weeks, I just keep thinking, what if? What if? What if? And then she goes to the appointment, and I've told her, and we now have this understanding. When you call, you need to say, first thing, I'm good. Not, well, the doctor noticed. It's like, you don't go? No, I don't go on this one. She doesn't need me on this one. But if the doctor says, Brian, you got to come, I'll be ready. So now she calls. I'm good. I'm like, I can breathe. I don't want to do it again. But I would never trade. I would never trade. God is so good in all of it. And I saw the church become the church. Because you know how crazy it was the first Sunday after I found out. I mean, I found out, I think it was like midweek. I was there that next Sunday teaching our kids and telling our students about it. And just saying, okay, this is where I'm struggling. This is what's going on. And but then to go into the worship service and then just have every single person, a couple thousand people just grab hands and to pray for us. And then everyone's willing to bring food. That's why I got all fat. I just kept eating. I had to li- guys, I've had to lose like 40 pounds since then. But I just kept bringing food. It's like I had one woman go, hey, I'll come do your laundry every week. I mean, it's just the church just woke up and took care of us. And realize, man, God, there's nothing like the church when the church is firing all cylinders. When we're doing what you called us to do. Woo! I learned God is sovereign. If you told me in that moment, God loves you, I don't care if he loves me. I want to know he can fix it. But I also learned this. That verse that says, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. I actually learned what's next. So she went ahead had a scan, came back. And it was just, this was supposed to be simple. And I was at home watching the boys. Which please understand, I, I do love my wife. I do go support her. But I, I had to watch the kids. They're sleeping. She comes home. I said, Nola, what'd they say? She goes, well, they think there might have been something on my brain. I'm like, what? This is, this is thyroid cancer. This is super treatable. They think they saw something. They're not quite sure. We'll check it again. And then right after that, she goes, I need to go to the grocery store. And then she walked out. I'm like, you cannot drop that. And then go get some, I don't know, salami. I can't do it. 
I remember I sat there. I remember, and then a buddy of mine preached a message in chapel, and I watched it, and it popped in my head. It's like a lot of times we tell God, okay, deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow me. You know that verse, you heard that verse, deny yourself? Deny yourself means just keep all the bad stuff away. That's what we think it means. He's like, that's not what it means. Denying self is not just keep the bad stuff away. It's not like bad, 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 but I get to bear hug everything. That's good, like my wife, my kids, my ministry, all this stuff, my family, friends. I do this, but keep the bad away. He's like, that's not denying self. That's just self-denial. To deny self means you don't do this with anything. You do this with everything. I remember hearing her preach that, and that was long before this happened. And as I'm sitting there, and she tells me the story, or, or tells me what happened, and she goes away, and I'm just sitting there, and I'm starting to cry, and, and that just popped in my head. And I literally, in that moment, took my hands, and I slammed them on my lap. And I said, Jesus, you're right. I'm done asking for you to heal me. He's like, how could you do that? Think I could cast all my cares on him because he cares for me. Didn't mean I didn't want her healed. I did want her healed. But instead of praying more for that, I just kept praying, God, just would you please help? I know that you're going to heal her if you want to. I know you can do it. But, oh, I don't have to worry about it. you're sitting on a pillow in a wagon and Jesus is just driving you home. You learn the greatest lessons in the times when it's the greatest stress. And sometimes the greatest stress. No, the greatest thing that God can do is whatever is most degrading to you for that moment. And that's what it is. It's all about him. It's all about him. So we look at this passage. I want to say that one more time. We always think it's this younger one. We're back in Luke 15. It's the younger one, right? <clears throat> it's always about the younger one, isn't it? Us pastors are really guilty and making sure we feel guilty about it. It's like, are you this one who's wandered off? You need to come back to the Lord, and then we stop the passage. Guys, the purpose of Jesus telling this story of the, of the younger brother and the older brother is not the younger son. The main reason is the older one, because the context is this. Some religious leaders got ticked off because Jesus liked to be around sinners. And so he's like, let me tell you some stories. Something's lost. One thing's lost. 99 are good. He's going to go after the lost every single time. One out of ten's lost, he's going to go after the one. You got one that takes off and comes back. You got one that never left. He's going to celebrate over the one who came back. And it's going to tick you religious. It's going to, take, it's going to tick you legalists off. How do I know? Because I'm a recovering legalist. I had God all figured out. I was like, I've done everything. Good, 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 good. Watch this next part, verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came, he drew near to the house. And he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked, what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. He killed the big one. I mean, that was the last thing he said after get the best robe, find this, da, da, da. He's like, get, kill Bubba the fattened calf. The one we've been waiting for, for the big party, let's get that one. Let's kill that sucker. And he gave the reason why this son of mine, going back in verse 24, he was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found and he began to celebrate. The older son's still in the field. He hears, this, he hears the music, hears the dancing, comes walking, gets closer, asks his servant, what's going on? Your brother came back. Your dad's killed the fattened calf. Are you partying? Brother, come in. Watch the son. Watch the older one. Oh, verse, I'm sorry, verse 28. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you, I never obeyed, I'm sorry, I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. 
But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. A couple things to notice. The son refused to go in. So what's the, what's the father's response? The father goes to him. Didn't the father go to the younger son also? Run into him? The father also went to the older son who refused to come in. He goes to him to entreat him, to beg him to come in. So if your story, if you relate more with the younger brother, if you're kind of in this place and just kind of you've wandered off and you're just kind of living it up thinking that you're, oh, I'm getting away with stuff. And when you come to your senses, you realize that the father runs to you. If you're the recovering legalist, you're just like kind of ticked off. I can't believe that this is how God is. I do, do, do. I serve, 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 serve. And you become more bitter. You realize that the father then comes out to you to entreat you. Whatever camp you're in, he still comes to you. Right? You see it? But what is the older son? What does he call the younger Verse 30. Tell me. Say it out loud. Someone say, 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 say. Like this son of yours. He doesn't say my brother. When this son of yours, what his brother, what this brother is saying, he says, not my brother. When this son of yours, he walks out and he goes off, he like he squanders everything he has, prostitutes, kills. You kill the fattened calf when he comes home. Verse 31, and he said to him, What's he call him? I love having conversations with people when we're at. What's he call him? Son. Why? Because he never referred to himself as his son. This older son always referred to this. I have served you. I've served, I've served, I've served, I've served. And this dad understood. This dad got it. You need to know you're my boy. It's like you are missing something here. Son. You are always with me, and all that I, and all that is mine is yours. He forgot. And he said, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For, here's the reason, for this your, what? Brother. It doesn't say, my, for my younger son came back. Daddy caught on what he said. This son of yours. I'm glad he said son of yours. I don't know if he was going to say, kind of use an urban accent. This son of yours comes back. And dad's like, mm, son, all that I have is just yours. So we have this battle. Why? Because when your brother, not my son, he has these understandings. He is my brother. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And when the story ends, You ever just look at Jesus go, um, hello, this is the to-be-continued part on your shelf? It's like, oh, you're kind of into it. You forgot to look at the watch. Like, oh, my gosh. And it goes, to-be-continued. Like, what? God, give me strength to, to endure this persecution. For a week, it's like we just get a little, little one more. So this is to-be-continued, but he never continues. We have no clue how it ends. And I don't think he has to tell, say why it ends because I think he got the attention of what he's pleading. Like you're ticked because someone who is lost is found. Like who is dead is alive and you're mad. And it's not like I love them more and love you less. It's man, get the right perspective. So friends, if you are like the younger son, you realize that there's a God who's saying, 
I'm going to wait for you to come back. And when I see that one turn of repentance, I will run to you. But for some of you, he's sitting there going, but I'm not going to run to you just yet. Because your flesh needs to be destroyed. And you have to realize that sin devours and you need to hurt. And But when you come to your senses and you turn to me, oh, I will run. I will run and we will have a party. But for those of you like the legalists who've never done anything wrong, always been to church, always done everything you're supposed to do, don't kill the nasty words, only kill the good ones, which you're pretty good at gossip, but not really. Because really, don't we like gossip, all of us? Be honest, be honest. When you ever, you ever hear this phrase, hey, did you hear about, and you're like, no. If it's about you, you're like, don't talk behind my back. But if it's about somebody else, it's like, And we go through all the details of it, but God's sitting there going, I need more details. I don't understand this. We just like, we just love it. So whether you're a younger son or an older son, we all like the gossip part, right? But if you're the legalist, God's sitting there going, I really, really, I really, really want to introduce you to this amazing son of God. For you called me for what? It's for God. It's who you are. And we think it's all just about rules and do's and don'ts reason behind it is messed. I think that it is. Remember when Jesus taught his disciples to pray? The disciples were like, teach us to pray. And he's like, okay. And he says, our Father in heaven. You know what I'm talking about? You know the Lord's Prayer? Do you guys do it in your church? You guys, how many do it all the time? It's like weekly, right? When you do it week, and, and I think it's great. I think it's wonderful. But do you ever notice how monotone it gets? Right? So if somebody's praying, I mean, I've been in church services before and someone's praying, and they're talking about requests that are coming out. That's the cool thing about being a smaller church. You can talk about all these things as I read. I love it. Like, and pray for this person, pray for this person. God, we pray that you pray, 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 pray. And then it's like, and then as we all pray, as he taught his disciples to pray, says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Okay, so that word Father in the Aramaic, the original language that Jesus would be speaking in, is the word Abba. You know what the word Abba means? Like Father. No, not quite. I've never called my dad Father. I've never walked in, Father, I need to speak with you. I call him Dad, Dad. My dad's my dad's like man's man. I mean, Vietnam vet got shot up in the war, scars all over his body, became a cop when he was done. Cop for as long as I can remember. Just like man's man. And yet I always call him dad. And yet it's even more personal than that. Guys, Abba is the word that a one-year-old calls dad for the first time. It's Papa or Dada. And so when Jesus says, you need to pray like this, you need to say our Papa. And I'm like, what? Can you imagine the disciples going, nope, nope. Every single person, when they heard Jesus say that, would say, absolutely not. Why? Because he's Yahweh. He's holy. And here comes Jesus going, you got to call him dad, and you need to keep him holy. In your life, you need to understand he is both. Abba means I'm in relationship. I'm son. I'm his son. I belong to him. 
Hallowed means you are so different than me. And some of you, you need to come back to the part where he's holy. He's holy God. He is terrible, like I explained last night, terrifying. Others of you, you're like, I love that. I just love living in that. And for those of you that said, I, that's it. That's all that there is. You need to be reminded. I remember the first time I heard Tyler call me that on the phone. Driving home, Kelly calls. Kelly wants to talk to you. Doesn't. We're not going to have like this big theological conversation. He's not going to tell me his sins. It's just like, I'm like, oh my gosh, he speaks in tongues. That's awesome. Yes. Praise the Lord. He's just going off. And then you can hear, like, Kelly's not even paying attention. And I love, what, and this is when we had like a home phone. So it's this massive phone on this kid. It's like ears here and the mouthpiece is way down here. And he's just talking and I can hear her working in the kitchen, getting something done. And, and all of a sudden I'm like, I'm, I'm talking. Really, really? That has the contribution. He just keeps going. And then you hear Kelly go, okay, Tyler, t- tell him bye. And I'd always heard ba-ba. That's all I always heard. But this time I heard ba-ba-da-da. And I went, oh. She gets on the phone. I'm like, I'm going to go buy a puppy. I'm going to buy a pony. Like, I don't care. It, oh, it moved me. And even when my youngest did, it wasn't like, well, you, he said it before you did. Who cares? Each time, it's like, think it's the first time. Don't I look at God and go, hey, Dad, yo, Pops. You're like, oh, you can't do that. Yes, I can. Because he said I could. But he's holy. I know he's holy. That's why I'm not demanding. I say, Pops, hey, Dad, Father. And I'll say, Father. There's always personal things. Sometimes you're like, Dad, I'm ready for this. I cannot wait to get this done. He wants this in relationship. And he has this very plan for you. I don't know what's true for you. Just know that he'll entreat you. He'll come to you. for those who don't. They haven't surrendered. They're not yet. But oh, how I pray, Holy Spirit, you would draw them, you would convict of sin. Father, you would draw them to Jesus that they could enter into this type of relationship with you. For you are not only holy God, but you are loving God. We thank you that whether we run from you and come to our senses and come back, you, you run to us or whether we refuse to come in because we're so irritated, you'll still come to us and entreat us. And all of it, God, we thank you. Because you're loving, 
hearts and minds as we keep things in simple things just keep running out of our minds. All of us. We want you to be free to be out of bed. And to go on and on and on with your life. You are not out of bed. The greatest thing Jesus has ever done in your life. Amen. Love you all more than you know. Here's your